Hello and welcome to episode 1949 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, I've been a bit of a nomad this week, what mm. with week after Christmas travel, so oh. I've recorded from a few different places, Jesse's family's place, my family's place, so I am currently coming to you from literally my mom's basement, so <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for any background noises that may be picked up here. I hear dog fingernails clicking and clacking above me and people oh. chatting and perhaps babies making baby sounds at some point, so that will just be an occupational hazard here but appropriate that i'm ending the year from my mom's basement probably yeah i will reassure you that in the time that you were talking i heard only your voice and no delightful atmosphere of family whatsoever (laughs) so you're you're doing okay so far it's funny that you are leading this with uh you know potential auditory difficulties when it took me 20 minutes to be able to log into this cast session for reasons (laughs) i'm still not clear about ben still don't know you know It's working now, so hopefully you won't hear the background noise, but I assure you that uh, I'm having the time of my life and everyone is just out of frame laughing too as I (laughs) record from the basement here, so Dylan will do his best. Anyway, this is our 157th and final episode of 2022. Wow. So it works out. We record three days a week, which is 43% of the days in the week, and 157 is 43% of 365 which is the number of days in the year so Mm. we have stayed on schedule you can set your clocks and your calendars by effectively wild and i think it's been a pretty decent year i think we've had some some very good memorable episodes so thanks to everyone who's been along with us for the ride i feel like there have been some high highs i i wonder ben do you do you have a good feel in the moment for like oh yeah people are gonna really like this this episode this bit of this episode like what's your what's your uh spidey sense like <laughs> how finely tuned is it because i find myself like sometimes you know we'll go on a a tangent and people will be like it is a classic and then sometimes <laughs> we're like why is this woman talking about her teeth for 20 minutes you know it can be i struggle to know sometimes i guess that it's hard to predict just because we have you know, we have a, a fairly broad listener base for which we are quite grateful, and I'm sure mm-hmm. th- different things hit different people in different ways. But do you come away from episodes being like, crushed it, or do you <laughs> do you have that? <laughs> no, not no, necessarily. I don't, I don't really either. There are certain times where I feel like, oh, that was a good one. Yeah. I think people like that one, but sometimes I'm surprised, as yeah. I am by my articles and the responses sure. to those. So you never know. You make yeah. things, hopefully you have fun, and then yep. you put them out in the world, and people either love them or are apathetic toward them. Yeah. Hopefully nothing worse than apathy and indifference, but generally we get good response and good feedback, yeah. so it's, it's fun to do. That's why it's still happening on right. such a regular schedule after so long. So this was the... The 10th anniversary year, so that was special. Lots of 10th anniversary episodes, and and we had the the baseball Twitter draft, and we had the in-venue interview. Just, you know, a lot of episodes this year that you would probably put in the pantheon, or so I would say myself. That I think I think maybe that episode is the exception, right? We got <laughs> off we got off the blower after doing the Invenue one, and I was like, I think people are going to talk about this interview. <laughs> I yeah. think people might have something to say about this one, you know? Because yeah. um, rarely, rarely are are we in the moment so 
I don't know that rattled is the right word because I think we held it together pretty okay, but just like incensed, uh, un- <laughs> unsure about what is going on, how we got here. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it, that was quite not, a ride. It's not often that effectively wild goes viral or like gets, gets yeah. aggregated. Like, oh boy, we just said something <laughs> like the, yeah. the bloggers, so they're going to have a field day with, with this. Like, I mean, we are bloggers first of all, but yeah. also <laughs> nothing we say is uh, super newsworthy. Usually. I mean, hopefully we're bringing you news and it's informative and fun, but in terms of like making news in the wider baseball ecosystem. So that was sort of an exception. Anyway, yeah. it's yeah. been a good year. Been a good year. Hmm. All right. So to end the year, we have to continue our exercise from earlier in the week where we ran down a story that we missed in 2022 about every National League team. Today, we will circle back to the American League teams. Just a bit of banter before we get there. There haven't been a whole lot of notable transactions since we last spoke or last bantered. The only exception really being the Marlins signing Gene Segura, which was uh, oh, yeah. nice Nice to see the Marlins signing someone. This yeah. was, I believe, the first major league contract that the Marlins had given someone this offseason. So yeah. nice for them to, to break the seal, <laughs> get on the board here. I don't know how many more moves are coming, but we've talked not too long ago about just being disillusioned by the Marlins, or or maybe we shouldn't have been illusioned in the first place, but they've disappointed me, at least, just in their inactivity this offseason. So Gene Segura, like, he's, he's a nice player, you know? He's uh, he's an average guy. He's going to give you some, some good work. I guess they're going to be playing him at third base, at least unless they make some subsequent move, but he kind of was overshadowed by the cream of the shortstop crop this winter and for good reason but he's a good player you know he's yeah. uh, he's gonna be i mean look at his wrc pluses over the past three seasons 106 109 105 plus a 109 in 2018 so that's just sort of who he is and he is uh probably going to be getting a little bit worse i suppose in that he will turn 33 in march but He's solid. <laughs> He's yeah. a, a credible major league player and position player, which is something that the Marlins could use. So two years, 17 million with some sort of third year option, it sounds like. But there's just there's not enough more that they could do really to change the trajectory of their winter at this point, probably. Just like looking at the depth charts, fan graphs projections now. Yeah. They're pitching war projection is okay like they're in the realm of teams that hope and expect to contend though toward the the lower end of that realm but position players they're they're way down there so if you just look at the position player war I think they're seventh lowest and the only teams with worse projections than the Marlins are the Reds, the Rockies, the Nationals, the Tigers, the Royals, and the A's. So that's not where they want to be or where they should be at this point. And so they've been sitting on their hands all offseason and they really needed to and need to do more. So we'll see whether they have a, a trade of some sort in them. Yeah, we've talked about their capacity to maybe consolidate some of their pitching and see what what's what, but I don't know. I think it would... It would take something quite surprising in order for them to salvage it. Like they would have to do a trade where we looked at the other side of the trade and are like, what is that GM thinking? You know? Right. And I don't think that we had particularly high expectations of them coming into 2023. It wasn't like I thought, oh, this is this team is just 
you know, two signings away from being in a position to like really do something, if only because their offense was so putrid last year. It was just so bad. <laughs> ben, it was It was bad. Yeah. It was so bad, you know. And so even if they had, you know, they would have had to do they would have had to do quite a bit. They would have had to sign quite a few of the top guys. And I, I don't want to like knock Gene Segura because I think Gene Segura is like still quite a good player and um, he will do stuff. But they needed more than than that in order to really have us look around and say, particularly in that division, like, oh, they're, you know, they're a f- they're a force. Mm-hmm. But it feels like a missed opportunity in an offseason with so many guys who are not only going to be good or who we expect will be good in 2023, but who we expect to be good for many years after that, that they didn't start to do some of that work to put themselves in position to compete in the division. Because, you know, they are going to have to, they're going to have to be willing to sign some guys. They're going to have to be like really good at player dev. They're going to have to be really good drafters. They're going to have to be really like savvy in the trade market because they are in a division with teams that, are either willing to spend big or who have a ludicrously cost controlled core for a long time. So, you mm-hmm. know, there's there's work to be done and punting that work to later off seasons doesn't seem like a, a particularly winning strategy, at least to me. So yeah. you know they did not narrow the gap between no, themselves and the no. other teams in that division. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't. And we weren't uh, again, we weren't expecting that they would close it, but do do some of the the narrowing work, like um, I'm trying to like come up with a, you know, like a want to do a big boat getting stuck metaphor, but I don't, I don't think I have it. So just um, remember when that big boat got stuck? That was last sure year, do. wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. even this year. Although mm-hmm. it seemed like there was a dicey stretch where we were like, oh no, the big boat, uh, a big yes. boat might be stuck in the same spot again. But mm-hmm. I think we dodged that bullet anyway. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's 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 bad. The the gap has widened, I think, and the wild card picture isn't looking so hot either. Anyway, I guess the the time to to dump on the Marlins is not when they finally sign someone. No, but in I fairness, know. we dumped on them before they signed yeah. someone also. So <laughs> well, and I, I do think that like we had Gene Segura on our top twenty five. Like he he remains productive in a way that is like he'll surprise you. You know, you're like because he, mm-hmm. he's. He's only ever like a little above average at the plate, right? Like he had the one really great year from a hitting perspective, at least for him in 2016 when he was with the Diamondbacks. But he's not like a guy where you're like, wow, you can build a whole offense around him. But he's like a, a useful veteran. And, you know, he had he had a 105 WRC plus last year. Ben, how many hitters? I know that very few of them were qualified as we covered in our last episode, <laughs> but if you were to guess, if you were like to do a little guess, I love that we are looking for the Marlins offense. And because of their acro, I am searching for MIA offense <laughs> on our leaderboards. That's funny. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, like Jazz had a 139 WRC plus, but that was only mm-hmm. 241 play appearances. Garrett yep. Cooper managed a 115. Mm-hmm. Charles LeBlanc. Who even are you? <laughs> Charles LeBlanc. I don't even know who that is. Definitely a, a hitter who exists. Charles LeBlanc. We all or know. Or a character in Glass Onion. <laughs> it is one or the other. Who are you? I don't Charles even. LeBlanc, see, he was, he's a rookie. We should have done a meet a major league for Charles have. LeBlanc. So we would have done I'm who he was. I'm meeting him right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know who this is. It's, you know, Ben. It's and maybe this is a dereliction of duty on my part. I'm willing to accept that I am a dummy, perhaps. But it's rare for me to be like, "Who? 
like to, to really not know right yeah. to really not know and then like brian de la cruz who is someone i have heard of like i know who that is he had a 104 so like you know gene's gonna be be in there doing stuff you know mm-hmm. but yep. um charles leblanc <laughs> he i said- thought i knew all the leblancs too because i just love i love the who are you? Oh, he's from Canada. <laughs> he's Here. from Quebec. That makes sense. Oh, well, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Georges Vanier Secondary School in Laval. <laughs> Rangers fourth round pick. Yeah, I apologize to all of our French speakers. <laughs> like, you know, he went to Pitt. Okay. University of Pittsburgh. He played college baseball for those Panthers. Yeah, plays a few positions. Uh, and he made his pro debut in 2016 and Selected off waivers in okay. December of 2021 from the Rangers. Okay. And then he was selected by the Marlins in the minor league phase of the Rule 5. Okay, I'm feeling less bad about uh, not knowing about this guy. Yeah. But Charles, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice rookie season. Yeah, how about that? He, <laughs> he came up, he, uh, he was called up on July 29th, 2020. Two, you know that mm-hmm. was the thing that happened. Doesn't he sound like a Glass Onion character? That's just because of Benoit, Benoit Blanc. But, but yes, yeah. I liked Glass Onion. You know, I like. I acknowledge that it has its limitations, but I, I quite, you know, I quite enjoyed it. Ben, how did you feel about Glass Onion? It's not among my favorites of, uh, <gasps> of Ryan Johnson's work, and honestly, oh. neither is Knives Out. I don't know oh, what it okay. is. No, I, uh, that's I really fine. like Ryan Johnson other movies, you- but. You are These not, movies, I'm good. just not as high on them That's as okay. most people are. You it are might be not, the genre. I don't know. Yeah, you're not obligated, but that is a useful adjustment for me to make mentally about Glass Onion because mm-hmm. it wasn't like you were like all in on Knives Out and then right. Glass Onion, you were like, meh. You're right. less into it. That's fine. Yeah. You know, Ben, you watch so much stuff. You don't have to be into everything you watch. You couldn't like that many things. That feels physically yeah. impossible. More of a more of a looper last Jedi man myself. I really anyway. liked Last Jedi. Anyway, we're we're not doing we're not doing that discourse, but we are dipping our toe. Knives Out was the last thing I saw in theaters before the pandemic hit. And oh. so I really like it on its own, but I do think that I am also uh, it's getting a little, it's getting a little nostalgic boost for being the last in theater experience I had before theaters were for a while terrifying. Right. So, well, the Marlins signed a free agent, and in the process, they helped us discover Charles LeBlanc. Yeah. So that's nice. All right. I really have never, <laughs> even one time, thought about that combination of names in the context of Major League Baseball. So shame on me, you know. In other news, ESPN's <laughs> Jesse Rogers reported that 10 umpires are retiring. Wow. So, yeah, it's uh, the most who have retired, I guess, in any season since uh, 1999, which is uh, a lot of these umpires, they, they came in together around the same time after that big labor dispute where 22 former yeah. umpires resigned and then some were subsequently rehired. But this is the biggest mass exodus of umps since then. And seven of them are were crew chiefs and over 200 combined umpired MLB seasons among them and 16 World Series umpired. So it's a distinguished group and I want to wish them all happy trails and congratulate them on their careers and everything. But also... I want to sort of insult them for a second here, but not not in a mean spirited <laughs> way. Just in the sense that so you're like doing a you're like doing the Rickles roast. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know how we have talked about the fact that 
the more experienced, the longer tenured umpires tend to have less rulebook conforming strike zones, Yes, which is not necessarily an ageism thing. It, it may have nothing to do with age. It seems to be largely because umpires who came in prior to Pitch FX, prior to TrackMan, prior to StatCast, even prior to QuestTech in some cases, when they were not getting that feedback on their zones from technology and they were not being graded based on technology, then they developed their own idiosyncratic zones. And they've conformed to some extent, as they have had to as the technology has come in, but they still hail from an earlier era where there was less of a a priority on getting the calls according to the rulebook zone. And so you see that typically the best umpires, the John Lipkas and the Pat Hobergs of the world, they (laughs) tend to be the younger, less experienced umpires who have come up in this era and grew up with this technology as umpires and they're used to getting that feedback. And maybe they just kind of had those zones from the get-go, or at least they didn't have pre-established zones that they then had to change away from. And so if we look at the 10 umpires here, I just I looked up their accuracy percentiles according to umpire scorecards and not all of these 10 were active umpires in 2022 most of them were but I just pulled the accuracy percentiles from their most recent and final seasons in MLB and I'm just going to read you their names and their percentiles Ted Barrett 14th percentile Greg Gibson 6th percentile Tom Hallion, he of the demonstrative strike three call, which Mm. I will miss, Mm -hmm. 15th percentile. Sam Holbrook, 26th percentile. Jerry Meals, 17th percentile. Jim Reynolds, 35th percentile. Bill Welke, 19th percentile. Marty Foster, 3rd percentile. Paul Nauert, 8th percentile. Tim Timmons, 27th percentile. A lot of low numbers there, as you may have noticed. So. All 10 of these umpires were well below average, according to umpire scorecards metric, measuring their their rulebook accuracy. And really, no one was even close to being average. I looked at their consistency scores as well as their accuracy scores, and most of them were well below average in that as well. So there's more that goes into umpiring than just uh, making balls and strike calls. But if you care about how closely an umpire's calls mirror the rulebook zone and the zone that they are graded on, this would suggest that this outgoing group of, of umpires, and, and I'm not saying it has anything to do with these accuracy metrics, they may have all just decided to retire of their own accord. But if you are someone who likes the calls to mirror the rulebook strike zone yeah. and doesn't like to see disagreement between K zones and more accurate versions of K zones and umpire calls, then this changing of the guard here is probably good news for you because uh, we're not getting automatic ball strike calls this season and we don't even know if we'll get them in 2024. But We have seen just umpire accuracy and consistency improve across the board over the course of the pitch tracking era. And I would imagine that this many umpires leaving at once and being replaced by fresh recruits, that might have an actual demonstrable difference in like league-wide accuracy rates. So just saying they they come from an earlier era, and I will miss some things about that era, like Tom Hallian's demonstrative strike three call. I kind of like that. I I get why it's sort of like ump show-esque, and some people might think better to be 
seated, not heard, or, you know, not even seen really right. or not noticed but uh, it's kind of fun right yeah. when he does that but who knows like does the demonstrative strike call affect his accuracy because he's really got to make the call quickly right. so that he could do the full windup i right. don't know anyway umpires are, are getting more homogenous as a group and yeah. probably most people would be pleased about that yeah i think that if we are able to marry a better trained or trained in a more modern way group of umpires with the challenge system, which I hope that you, Ben, get a chance to see in person because this is such a perfect... I feel so vindicated. I'm so rarely... (laughs) Not that I'm rarely right. That sounds self-aggrandizing like but i like i don't i don't try to like you know have takes like call it you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like i called it right here and i feel vindicated by my experience of the challenge system and other people importantly experience of the challenge system being so positive so i feel like I, i got it so i think that if we combine those things it will in a really meaningful way improve the viewing experience for people like i i think that this is an underrated fan viewing improvement innovation that we might have and all it took was you know like better training and technology that's existed in tennis for a really long time so mm-hmm. i think it's good ben i think we might we might get a win here in terms of our experience of watching the game you know it's gonna mm-hmm. be and we're gonna have so much fun you know when if the challenge system comes to the big leagues you and i we're gonna have a great time because we're gonna yeah. have oh boy we're gonna be able to like you know, there'll be this whole new thing that players and managers can do to impart value to their right. team. And yeah. we're going to have we're going to have so much fun when they get it right. We're going to be have so much fun when they get it wrong. It's going to tell us so much about like human ego, you know, and <laughs> and, and perception. I mm, I can't yeah, I can't wait. It. It's going to yeah. be and we'll never You'll just never have a playoff game end on a bad call again, really. Like, we're just going to be able to eliminate that problem. So now, the if we can get replay, the replay standard to change to just getting the call right rather than this, like, you know, overwhelming evidence, then I think we're really going to have that little bit of that pocket of problems all sewn up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I would lament if we went to full robot umps is just there'd be a lot less to analyze and yes. discuss. And I get that for many people, that's, that's the point. okay. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they just want the calls to be accurate yes. based on a certain definition of accuracy, and, and yeah. they don't want any dispute or room for analysis. Right. But you lose a lot there yeah. when it comes to umpire zones and catcher yeah. influence and yeah. all sorts of just little idiosyncrasies of, of players and officials and strategy about where you pitch when this umpire is behind the plate, all those sorts of things just go out the window. And if we keep this, then yeah, maybe it's the happy medium where we get to still analyze and just like roll around like a a pig in mud and just spray (laughs) ourselves, cover ourselves with data. (laughs) And uh, other people will not have to endure occasional terrible and costly calls. Right. Seems great. Best of both worlds. Yeah, it seems it seems like old Meg, she had it figured. No, other people came up with it, but I, yes. I was right about it. Let it be said. 
And a couple follow-ups from last time. So last time we talked about, this was uh, prompted by the Marlins and their one qualified hitter this uh, past season, Miguel Rojas, who who barely qualified and was also barely qualified just like on a performance <laughs> basis. Oh, but man. Marlins but, fans are going to be like, go back to not talking about us. <laughs> yes, but... We talked about just the the overall decline, especially in the last couple of years, but but over a, a longer period of just the number of qualified hitters qualified for the batting title and also 700 plus plate appearance hitters and just the reducing number of plate appearances by the average qualified hitter. And we talked about various reasons for that. One reason we did not mention was proposed by listener J.G. White in our Patreon Discord group who wrote, with regard to the Marlins section in episode 1947, a factor that may have been overlooked is the zombie runner. Mm. When racking up plate appearance totals, the occasional nine plate appearance extra innings marathon can be the difference between barely qualifying or not. The overall plate appearance totals league-wide are certainly going to be lower now than pre-zombie. A quick stat blast comparison of plate appearances in extras per game now and before multiplied by the average number of extra games per team divided by nine would give you a rough idea of the cumulative impact. So I did that because I was kind of curious and I expected that this would be a fairly minor factor, but... I'm always uh, happy to recognize ways in which the zombie runner has changed the game, usually for the worse, although in this case, I guess it's uh, debatable. But in 2019, and really after the zombie runner, basically 9% or so of games go to extra innings. And the difference in length just on average is only about an inning. So Mm. in 2019, the games that went to extras lasted about 11 and a third innings on average. In 2021, roughly the same percentage of games went to extras, but they averaged about 10 and a third innings instead of 11 and a third innings. So you only have so many extra inning games per team per season. And if you're only lopping off one inning on average, it's not going to be a huge amount. But I looked at the numbers. So in 2019... Of the 2,429 Major League games played that year, 208 went to extras, and there were 3,861 total extra innings plate appearances, and so there were 18.6 plate appearances per extra inning game in extras, and so you have to divide that by two because there are two teams playing, so that's 9.3 plate appearances per team in extra innings games. And then in 2021, or I'll do 2022, but it's almost exactly the same. There were exactly the same number of extra inning games in 2021 and 2022. But in 2022, of the 2,430 total games, 216 went to extras. There were 2,395 plate appearances in extras. So again, the difference there league-wide is 2,395 to 3,861. So, you know, you're lopping off uh, almost 1,500 plate appearances across the league. But the difference now, so in 2022, there were 11.1 plate appearances per extra inning game in extras. So lop that in half, you have 5.5 plate appearances per team per extra inning game. And that is 3.7 fewer plate appearances per extra inning game than we had in 2019, 
which tracks, I think, because we just said that there's like an inning shorter. And so 3.7 plate appearances seems about right. So 3.7 plate appearances fewer per extra inning game now per team. And on average, each team has about 14 extra inning games over the course of the season, 14.4 to be precise. So if we multiply 14.4 by 3.7, that is 52 fewer plate appearances over the course of the season per team because of the zombie runner. And then if we divide that by nine for the players in the lineup, then we get 5.8 fewer plate appearances per Mm. player per team because of the zombie runner. And you could fudge that a bit, I guess, based on maybe certain lineup spots uh, having a disproportionate number of extra innings plate appearances or whatever. But basically, it's going to be like five to six plate appearances per regular player per year per team. Okay, so, you know, not a lot. Not, not a lot. A, not a lot. No. Here, here was the thought that occurred to me on this subject after we got off. And I don't know. I feel like this is also a not a lot. But do you think that um, the fact that guys, uh, mm, I don't even know, you know, for hitters, this is probably a really not a lot. Mm-hmm. But do you think that guy, the fact that guys are limited in the number of times they can be optioned will mm. you know like allow a little cream to rise to the top probably not right. right it's a bigger deal for pitchers than it is for hitters it is a bigger deal i guess that would that would inflate plate appearances right, right. it might be a countervailing yeah, a force count- was right. my point like it might yeah. you know buoy a couple of guys by a couple of but it probably only yeah. by a couple because if you're a up and down roster guy you're probably not close to qualifying anyway right Right. right. Yeah, I yeah. guess. Yeah. If you're a, a regular who's going to have a chance to qualify, you're probably not getting optioned anyway. But yeah. but maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Probably not. I talked myself out of it live on air, but, you know, <laughs> it's good to go through the process. You know? Yes. Right. Yeah. Anyway, it's anyway. Uh, it's a factor. So yeah. thank you for, for pointing it out. I think it's smaller than other factors we mentioned. Sure. But it's, a but it's in there. Cause. Yep. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. part of the soup. It's one yep. of it's one of the ingredients in the big baby salad. <laughs> exactly. People who haven't listened to the Patreon pod have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. We also got a, a response to the Cardinals entry. We we talked among other things. We talked about Lars Nootbaar and his pepper grinder and his uh, pepper yeah. grinding motion, which was about grinding out plate appearances. And we got a response on Twitter from at Carpendingers, who (laughs) (laughs) wrote... Fandom is great. (laughs) I think you're slightly underselling the prop comedy effect of Newt Bar's pepper grinder. It wasn't just that he had a standard pepper grinder like you'd buy at a store. It started with just a grinding hand gesture. And then one day he had a normal grinder in the dugout. The celebration caught on. He got a slightly larger one. Every couple of weeks, he would upgrade it until it got to Turd Ferguson hat levels. He had a whole row of grinders in the dugout with one that was nearly the size of a bat. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's funny. Yeah. I'm into it. I'm not normally like a prop comedy person, but I do admire commitment to a bit. So Mm -hmm. I'm into that more. I'll take the note, you know? Right. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like you know the the giant hat. The Brian Robinson of the Commanders had his comically big cap, right, and that became a meme. And uh, so I guess Newt Bar he just kind of gradually kept upsizing the pepper grinder. I wonder if it was like, how did he get the different models? Did he have like a bat rack where he had just different sizes of pepper oh, grinder? Yeah. Did did he just like upgrade the size so slowly and gradually that he fooled everyone into thinking that the pepper grinder was not getting bigger and then suddenly they were like wow this pepper grinder is huge did it yeah. used to be that big 
Anyway, that is amusing. So thank you for giving us that context I wonder, at Carpet Diggers. <laughs> uh, I wonder if he was like, um, oh, you know what might have happened, Ben? What? You know a gift that gets given that a lot of people don't end up using very much? Our, our wine racks, you know, you put oh, yeah. like a little wine mm-hmm. rack on your, and I bet, you know, maybe I'm speculating, maybe like at one point Lars Newbar was given a wine rack and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, this is like, you know, it's a nice idea, but do I really need it? And now he's like, huh, got a use for that wine rack and put those pepper grinders in there. And he has like a collection, you right. know, but you got to be careful with stuff like that, Lars, because sometimes you indicate to your friends and family, I like a thing. And then they get a version of that thing for you for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, like for Christmas, you're like, oh, look, I went to Bryn Mawr and now I have more owl stuff. But it's like <laughs> I haven't been an undergrad for a while now. So like we yeah. can move on from the owl stuff. You got to give people new. You got to give people new grist for the mill. <laughs> anyway. Oh, well done. All thank right. you. Thank you. I didn't even know that that was where I was. That was the destination. But that was where the road took me. And another follow up. I got curious about the consistency of replay challenge success rates from yes. season to season because we were talking about the Mets and yeah. how they had a league leading success rate and in fact the highest success rate on record with as many challenges they had 78%. They were 26 out of 33 in getting the calls overturned. So that was good, but I wondered, does this actually stay the same from year to year? If you're good at that one year, are you still good at that the next year? Yeah, is it sticky? Yeah, because uh, the Mets were not good at this in 2021, so they actually had, eh, they were, I guess, uh, one of the, the lower percentages in 2021. But that was with a a different manager and I think also a different replay review person. But in 2021, they were 35% successful, which was not good. That was uh, below average, I think. So I looked just year to year since 2014, excluding 2020. And it really varies by year. Like from 2021 to 2022, there was essentially no correlation whatsoever. So it was just uh, whether you were good in 2021 really had no no bearing or didn't indicate whether you were going to be good in 2022. Some years there was a much stronger correlation. In total, the correlation was 0.37, where zero is no correlation and one is a perfect correlation. So this is uh, weak to moderate. And I, I didn't make any effort to account for consistency of, of the replay people. So if I oh. isolated, if I were to go above and beyond and look up who was the replay review person for Which might for be hard to do, year, even. It might be hard to, yeah. And so if I did that, or even managers staying the same, yeah. since they're ultimately making the call usually, like that might give you a, a higher correlation, I would think. But if you know nothing else... Right. Except what a team's replay review success rate was last year, and you don't know whether they'll have different people or the same people or whatever, then 0.37 is the correlation. And it's it's not very strong. Just uh, like to give you an idea, like most pitching and, and batting stats are more correlated from year to year than that. It would be about equivalent to hitter BABIP. Is, mm. is roughly that level of correlation. It's like it's an even lower correlation than batting average, but but BABIP is uh, right around that same range. And 
that's a pretty random thing. Like not as random as it is for pitchers because uh, obviously like how you hit the ball and where you hit the ball and how fast you are, all of those things influence your BABIP and, and that does have some level of consistency, but there's still a lot of fluctuation from year to year. Yeah. And so if someone has a super high BABIP one year, you might think he's more likely than not to be a high BABIP guy, but you wouldn't really take that BABIP to the bank. So right. that's the level of confidence that, that you should have about a team's replay review success rate. And I guess that makes sense because A, it's just a small sample inherently, and B, these are all borderline calls for the most part. So they could go one way one year and the other way the other year. But yeah. there seems to be some skill to it. It's not completely random. Yeah, that that seems like it tracks with my expectation. Mm-hmm. All right. And my final follow-up from that episode, we didn't have a, a listener submission for the Rockies. So I, I ended up <laughs> supplying one myself about how their farm system had improved more yeah. than any other team, according to MLB Pipeline, over the course of 2022. But we did get some belated suggestions in the Discord group from listener Andrew, who uh, was uh, making up for his fellow Rockies fans in not having suggested something. So he went above and beyond and suggested several, and I, I won't share them all here, but there are some good ones. Riley Pint the Rockies' former first-rounder who threw super hard in high school but never really put things together. He unretired after having retired the previous summer, and he came back and and still had control issues, which was why he retired, I guess, ultimately. He had fewer control issues but also fewer strikeouts. Anyway, I guess he was the same sort of guy, but he was back, and he was only 24. And then also... C.J. Crone became the first Rockies first baseman since Todd Helton to be an all-star, and their third ever, Andres Galarraga, was uh, the other to be selected. And also the Rockies scoreboard operator is clever and goes viral sometimes for funny messages, and also the Rockies have five pitchers in the WBC and only one batter. But the one that really caught my eye more than the others was uh, a reaction by Kyle Freeland, former Effectively Wild guest. Oh, I should also mention, and Brendan Rogers quietly having a pretty decent year and yeah. winning a gold glove, so that was nice. But the one that I really liked, Kyle Freeland, former Effectively Wild guest, in August, he had a home run saved for him by Sam Hilliard, which was hit by Brandon Drury, and it was going to be a home run, but it was uh, it was pulled back by Hilliard from over the fence, and Hide your kids, uh, cover your kids' ears, listeners here who are sensitive to to language, because Kyle Freeland, his reaction, it's caught on video, and there's a Reddit thread about it, which I will link to. And I'm not a skilled lip reader myself, but it, it doesn't take a lot of skill to see what he was saying here after having this home run saved for him. He said, holy shit balls, motherfucker. <laughs> 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 very just very clearly enunciates or or ellipsiates, emouthiates, holy shit balls, motherfucker. After having a, a home run removed from his record, thanks oh, to Sam Hilliard. Yeah, so oh, I enjoyed that. All right, well, thank you, Andrew. All right, so let's pick up with the American League teams and the stories that we didn't discuss or under discussed in 2022. These were submitted by effectively wild listeners. So going in alphabetical order. The Angels, whom we talked about quite a bit this year. Yeah, I was going to say, did we under-discuss the Angels? <laughs> no, definitely not. And so we didn't get many submissions for the Angels. Yes. I think we, we kind of covered the Angels. Yeah. But 
One thing that listener Wayne pointed out is that Angels starting pitchers ended with the eighth best ERA in baseball, and I will go one better and say the sixth best Fangraphs war in baseball, which I knew that the Angels starters were better this year, and certainly Shohei Otani was great, but I didn't realize that they were quite that good. So sixth best war from their starting pitchers behind only the Astros, the Phillies, the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Mets. And I looked back just to see when the last time that they had had any kind of decent performance from their rotation was. And you really have to go back a bit because 2019, as recently as then, they were dead last. And the last time that they were higher than 15th, so basically above average, was 2011, which was also Mike Trout's uh, partial debut year. So they had not finished higher than 15th in Mike Trout's career using his full seasons until 2022. And of course, that was still not enough to get him to the playoffs again. But, But it was progress. I guess the problem was that as they had the sixth best rotation war, they had the 25th best bullpen war. So that'll get you in addition to their other problems. But it was it was progress. And, and we talked about how their rotation with some of the changes that they've made this winter, it really projects to be pretty solid going into next year. So we'll see. But it wasn't just Otani, obviously. Yeah. It was uh, Patrick Sandoval who we've talked about. And it was Reed Detmers and Jose Suarez and also Syndergaard and Lorenzen who are no longer there. But it wasn't solely Otani, although he was obviously leading the way. So better starting pitching than the Angels have had for more than a decade. Yeah. So got to round the rest of that roster into shape and they'll be back in October in no time. One of these years. Is this the year? <laughs> the fact that the, the regular season extends like almost a week into October now, it always it yeah. makes me think twice about when I say like, can they get back to October or something? I, I know. Like the pedantic part of me is like, well, they will because they have games scheduled for October. But you know what I mean. But will it extend into October again? Wasn't, I guess it did last year I think year it still too. will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It still will. Anyway, no one else is bothered by that, I'm sure. All right, the Astros are up next, and this is a suggestion from Kevin. So Dusty Baker bought the team breakfast food after Yom Kippur for Alex Bregman, but not just for Alex Bregman, like basically for everyone. Oh. So I did not know about this. I'm, I'm reading a story here from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. This was uh, published October 7th. Headline, Astros manager Dusty Baker hopes matzo ball soup will give his team a playoffs boost. Maybe it did. Anyway, Jewish Herald Voice is the byline from from Houston here, and it leads with, If the Astros make it to the World Series later this month, which we know they did, fans can thank team manager Dusty Baker along with a fresh-baked challah and several quarts of matzo ball soup. Baker stopped by Kenny and Ziggy's New York delicatessen here just before Yom Kippur ended to load up on food to help Jewish star Alex Bregman break the fast. He said he wanted to do something really nice for Alex, and he bought a substantial amount of food. Ziggy Gruber told the JHV, I thought that was quite noble of him, Dusty eats here all the time and said it is one of his favorite places. So Dusty likes the the Kenny and Ziggy's New York delicatessen. And again, according to Gruber, the Astros manager walked out with enough to feed the entire team. He got a round challah, three pounds of pastrami, some corned beef, rye, bread, potato salad, 
coleslaw, smoked fish, nova, bagels, and of course, a bunch of matzo ball soup. Oh, and he also loaded up on dessert with all kinds of rugelach and cookies. And uh, Baker said he also gave some soup to Luis Garcia, who was ailing. And Dusty said, I got him some matzo ball soup, so he will probably be well tomorrow. And we know he was uh, quite good, and the Astros were quite good. So the owner of the delicatessen said, we know they are going all the way, there is no doubt. And if we end up playing one of the New York teams or Los Angeles, it will be good for business. I've operated delis in New York and Los Angeles, but I've been here 23 years and will be wearing Astros colors for sure. So how much do we attribute the Astros postseason success to Dusty Baker loading up on food at this New York delicatessen and giving matzo ball soup to everyone? I don't know, but it can't have hurt, I guess. A nice gesture, at least. This is why people love Dusty, why he's yeah. a player manager. He'll yeah. just bring you food after you break your fast. And yeah. also, if you weren't fasting, he'll still bring you food. Yeah, I mean, I think that food can feel a lot like medicine, um, mm-hmm. and it it certainly is rejuvenating, particularly after you've not had it for a while. So I think you know, this is wise. Yep, it's wise. All right, the athletics just uh, not a, a ton of uh, positive stories to talk <sighs> about know. with the old A's this year. So we, we got we got suggestions about like relievers who were kind of mm. good <laughs> it's like you didn't talk about sam mole no well we didn't talk about sam mole i guess he had a pretty good year and he yeah. started really well but if that's the best you could do yeah aj puck was was mentioned just for having a, a decent year and also just like staying pitching, healthy yeah. i guess pitching at all yeah so that was nice i mean he was just a bullpen guy and, yep. and not like an amazing bullpen guy, just like no. a pretty good bullpen guy. But but he was around. He yep. pitched. So that's good. And the only other one, which I think we touched on, but maybe we didn't do it justice, is is Stephen Vogt homering in his final at bat. Oh, yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah. We may have mentioned that in passing, but, but that was a really nice moment. And Vogt, it was his final year with the A's, and of course he came up with the A's and was with the A's for some good season. He's just really, really popular with yeah. A's fans, and his nickname is I Believe, and he's just he's very popular, and he's funny. He does uh, great impressions of NBA or, or basketball referees, which you can watch online, and they're very amusing. So everyone likes Stephen Vogt, and this was a, a homecoming. He went back to Oakland for his final season, yeah. and it was a tough season. I mean, it was yeah. a tough season for the A's. It was also a tough season for Stephen Vogt, who yeah. just uh, did not hit at all and had some injury issues and had knee problems and couldn't really catch after the knee problems. But yeah. He went out with with a bang because yeah. he had a home run in his final plate appearance and it was uh, really emotional and everyone celebrated and he almost didn't get to hit because he was supposed to be pulled from the game with the starter, I think, according to Brandon who suggested this, but there was a clutch double play in the top of the inning which uh, earned him one more at bat, one more plate appearance and it was a home run and it yeah. was almost identical to his first career home run with the A's 10 years earlier, which was also hit in the Coliseum in the same direction. So it was just a really nice little way to end his career yeah. in the season. And that's about the best that I have here because yeah. the A's, like, if they traded all of their other good players yeah. for the most part. I mean, you know, I'm sure we, we talked about Sean Murphy's uh, telegenic hit-by-pitch plenty who oh, didn't. Oh, yeah. 
telegenic hip I pitch is such a <laughs> unhorny way of describing that. I know. But yes. Well, I made up for it because uh, the Ringer does uh, an annual compendium of just like the best sports moments where everyone on the staff just writes about some moment that they remembered. And I wrote about the Sean, Sean Murphy, Murphy hit by pitch combined with the big dumper Mariners homer. Mm-hmm. So I just I wrote about the AL West the- catchers with yeah. big butts, basically. Yeah, the year yeah. of the butt. Right. You know? So anyway, that's, uh, I guess, as good as it got. Like, we talked about the A's a fair amount. I mean, yeah. we talked about the wildlife in the ballpark. We talked about <laughs> the attendance and the ticket prices and the threats to move the team and just uh, them getting rid of uh, all their good players yeah. before the season or during the season. Yeah. But this was uh, the rare heartwarming moment. And his his kids uh, were there to announce him on the PA system, his, his three children. So they said, like, now batting our dad, Aww. number 21, Stephen Vogt. So just really sweet. And also he was starting at catcher in that game, his first start at catcher in like 47 games because wow. again, it, it had been hard for him to, to do that. Yeah. So it was just a really nice send off that he gave himself and also the team gave him. Yeah. I have never heard anything but really great things about Vote, including from people who have worked on the team side when he has been on their roster. He, I think we talked about this at the time, just seems like we're not done seeing Steven Vote in a big yeah. league dugout. I imagine that guy's going to end up coaching and, and progressing pretty quickly just based on what people say about him. Mm-hmm. But I also would submit this, Ben, that Steven Vote may have had a rough year at the plate and he might have been injured. But I would submit that a guy like that on a team like the 2022 A's, if ever there is a case that someone is bringing like value that war can't capture, I yeah. imagine it's a Steven Vote on a team like the 2022 A's because you know, he's this calming veteran presence, sounds like he's a good uh, teammate and mentor, you know, he's probably, he's a glue guy. And when your team's that bad and it's trading good players and it's maybe moving and- (laughs) Trade everyone who wasn't glued down, so yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like you need a a glue guy. And I think that he is, he's a a consummate glue guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so- um, uh, yeah, what a nice send off to Stephen Vote. I look forward yep. to seeing what he does next in his baseball career, assuming he wants to have one. You know, he does have three, I think, pretty young kids. So mm-hmm. maybe he'll just like hang out with his young kids. Who knows? Sure. Why not? All right. Blue Jays. So we also must have mentioned this at some point, but maybe we didn't give it its due. Kevin Gossman, not only did he have an extremely high BABIP, but he had the highest yeah. BABIP ever, Yeah, <laughs> really. Like, I mean, at least for a, a pitcher with as many innings as he threw, he threw 174 and two-thirds innings. If we set the minimum innings cut off at 170, I, I just looked the live ball era, 1920, so we're talking more than a century here, and no one has ever had a BABIP that high. His was 363. Wow. After that, you got to go down to Kevin Brown at 355, and that was in 94, so shortened year. So in a wow. full season, 353, Aaron Seeley in 1999. So that's like extraordinary. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's unprecedented for someone who pitched that many innings to have that high a BABIP. And so obviously that led to more than a full run or almost a full run gap between his ERA and yeah. FIP. 
And that is uh, probably why he finished only ninth in AL Cy Young award voting, even though he led the league in FIP and also in strikeout to walk ratio. Among AL pitchers, he was second only to Verlander in Fangraph's war. And so really, like, it it was an interesting test case because obviously voters are paying more attention to FIP these days. Yeah. But his gap was so extreme, I guess, that... It was too much. Yeah. When you have a a 3.35 ERA and you have a lot of other guys with very low, you know, sub three or sub two numbers, then that's just too much to to overcome, even for statistically savvy, uh, enlightened modern voters. So (laughs) that's just, I mean, he had to... To feel snake bit and yeah. and the Blue Jays like they did a lot of adventurous shifting, uh, yeah. especially early in the year, more outfield shifting than I think any other team did, and also early in the season, a lot of shifting against right-handed batters, but. They really dialed that down over the course of the season, and it seems like it it may have been because of Kevin Gossman, at least in part, because he was getting killed by the shift, or at least getting killed when the shift was on. He was not having better results on balls in play when the shift was on, which was the point of putting it on, and he was not thrilled about it. There's a quote from him in mid-July where he was referring back to a late June start against the White Sox, June 21st, when he pitched pretty well, but he gave up seven hits and and six innings and he took the loss and he said you usually only notice the negative things and you don't notice the line drives that are right at somebody you kind of forget those things you only notice and remember the times when a single turned into a double and they scored a run before my game in Chicago I was like these guys are doing a really good job of beating the shift in the first game of that series I was kind of like let's just go play baseball straight up and see what happens there was also maybe a couple times where I could have had an out where I gave up a base hit it's just a tough situation there's no right or wrong answer it's just dependent on if it's working or it's not. And that was uh, diplomatic. Like yeah. he, he didn't throw anyone under the bus no. too much. He said, you know, you notice the negative things. You don't right. remember the times when the shift bailed you out. But there were a lot of times when the shift <sighs> seemed to cost him a hit. Yeah. And so that comment and, and there was some, some rumor mongering or reporting that maybe he had objected privately to and as a, a veteran like maybe he had some input and a big addition so if we use that late June start as a cutoff the start before that the shift had been on for 73.6% of his pitches the start after that the shift was on for only 21.4% of his pitches so it seems like that might have been a time when things changed overall on the season he was shifted for on 39.2% of the pitches he threw but through June 21st 61.9% after June 21st 20.4% and even more extreme if we look at shifts against right-handed hitters it was 58.1% when Gossman was pitching against righties through June 21st only 7.7% after that so that's a pretty steep fall off and if we look at the Jays as a whole It is definitely the same sort of trend, but not quite as extreme. So Jays on the season, they shifted the second most frequently of any team, 50.9% of pitches, which was second only to the Dodgers at 53.1%. 
The Astros were the only other team that shifted on at least half of the pitches that they threw. Against righties, the Jays were also second to the Dodgers. Full season, 44.6% was their rate. The Dodgers were 46.4%. And the league as a whole was only at 20.4% against righties, which was down from its high in 2020, but a bit higher than 2021. We've talked about how shifting against righties may be a dubious decision on the whole if you do it too often. Now, if we break down the Jays through June and after June, you see the same sort of trend. So against all hitters, 61.8% through June. After June, 41.2%, which was only the sixth most, whereas they had been by far the most frequent shifters through June. Against righties, again, 61.1% through June. So they were shifting against righties almost as often as they were shifting against lefties. After June, only 26.5% against righties. And you see sort of the same thing with their four-man outfields because they did that much more than any other team too. They had a four-man outfield on 4.3% of all their pitches this season, But again, through June, 5.9%. After June, 2.8%. Even so, full season, they had 981 four-man outfields. The Rays were second, a distant second at 487. The Yankees at 223, the Tigers at 117, and no one else near 100. 21 teams never had a four-man outfield. So essentially, the Jays shifted less often after June, even when Gossman wasn't pitching. But when he was pitching, they shifted a lot less often. Yeah. Did that actually make a difference for Gossman? Well, not that clearly. Through that start on June 21st, he had a 372 BABIP. After June 21st, and you'd obviously expect some regression, even if you didn't do anything differently, but after June 21st, a lot less shifting going on, he still allowed a 357 BABIP. Not much lower at all. And in fact, if you look on the full season, Gossman allowed a 350 BABIP with the shift on and a 354 BABIP just with a standard defensive alignment. So it's weird that it's not much lower. You'd expect it to be significantly lower, but still, he allowed a higher BABIP with a standard defensive alignment and a very high one in both situations and a 477 BABIP on a partial shift, a strategic shift. So he was sort of damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Yeah. According to StatCast, he was third worst defensive support behind him. So just in terms of outs above average behind a pitcher, Patrick Corbin was dead last at negative 20 outs above average, the Nationals' defense when Corbin was on the mound. (laughs) Yeah, second was George Kirby of the Mariners at negative 12, and then Gossman at negative 11. So his defense uh, let him down, or he got very unlucky, or some combination of the two, and so he ended up with this just historically strange BABIP year and a barely top 10 finish in Cy Young voting when if you went by defense independent stats he was one of the very best pitchers in the league yeah I think that like I'm okay with the idea that (sighs) I don't know I think it's fine to look at that big of a gap and say yes clearly there was like some defensive problem here maybe a profound defensive problem, but that also maybe there was something weird that he was doing too. You know, like he was possible too. You know, he is very good. I don't I'm not knocking him, like to be clear. The grace under pressure exhibited by not being like these guys (laughs) Yeah. Get it together. Stop buttering your gloves before you go out there during one of my starts. You know, like I I'm sympathetic to and sort of admiring of the grace he exhibited in light of a thing that he he probably would have been within his rights to complain about like a little bit more and a little bit louder in public than he did. Mm-hmm. So I like, you know, but also like that's a big, that's a big. 
Yeah. No. You can't, you know, I can I can understand a Cy Young voter looking at that being like, a lot of that is Stevens, but maybe there's something in there that we're just not understanding about what he's doing. You know, I could mm-hmm. I could I have sympathy for that too. I don't think that that is exhibiting like an anti-stat approach, you know? Right. No. Yeah. And he had a a 307 career BABIP coming into the year, which is Slightly elevated, but obviously nowhere near 363. Yeah. So so maybe he had some tendency to, obviously he's hard to hit just yeah. in general or, or at this stage of his career he is. But sometimes you have guys who uh, they're hard to get the bat on the ball. But when you do get the bat on the ball, then it, it tends to be hit hard, sort of a Josh Hader situation. Yeah. So, so he may have been a bit prone to that. But not to that extent. Yeah. And he did have better than average hard hit rates and exit velocities and barrel rates. So he just had a hard luck year one way or another. Yeah. Which he acknowledged and vented a bit about on August 25th after a loss to the Red Sox. He said, I try to focus on the contact I'm getting, but obviously you want the results and the soft contact. You just feel like you're not getting beat. They're not necessarily earning it. And they are. It's still a hit, but there's been a lot of ground balls that seem to be finding their way into the outfield. All I can really focus on is making better pitches before that happens, you know? Strike a guy out. That's kind of where I'm at. A lot of the bad stuff that happened tonight, I could have done things earlier in the at-bat to maybe keep that from happening. Yeah. And speaking of putting balls in play and making things happen, let's transition to the Cleveland Guardians. Talked a lot about Stephen Kwan Mm -hmm. this year, but one thing that I did not know and... Probably every Guardians fan knows this, and and maybe you know this. I'm sure it was mentioned on broadcast and everything. But his parents, Stephen Kwan's parents, Jane and Ray, they met in the 80s while playing pinball. And so they got young Stephen Kwan hooked on pinball (gasps) when, when he was very young. And it seems to have helped. Like, he gives credit to hit pinball for his hand-eye coordination, which is uh, so important to his hitting profile and knowing when to swing and being able to make contact. Really? He's, he's apparently a, a pinball wizard. I did wow. not know this about him. Yeah. I didn't know that about... I Like, move over, Mookie Betts. There's yeah. a... There's a a new guy in the clubhouse for weird alternate sport (laughs) acumen. That's so cool. Yeah. I like the idea that we should be training our young baseball players on on playing pinball. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's delightful. Yeah. And and also interesting, this is something I noticed. A few people suggested, uh, Scott and others that, or Corey, that we talk about Oscar Gonzalez. And, you know, people brought up the fact that, yeah, he had the SpongeBob theme music as mm-hmm. his, his walk up and SpongeBob kind of became the official or unofficial team postseason mascot. And that's nice. But one thing that I thought was interesting about those two rookies, uh, the Guardians had tons of rookies and young guys on this team, but those two, Oscar Gonzalez and Stephen Kwan, who uh, were were big for them all year and particularly in the postseason, they were polar opposites when it came to swing rates. Mm. So I guess, I don't know if Oscar Gonzalez played much pinball when he was young. <laughs> Because he sort of swung at everything. Yeah, as is his want. Right, and Stephen Kwan swung at nothing. So among rookies with at least 350 plate appearances, Kwan had the lowest swing rate. Gonzalez had the highest swing rate. And even if we go just uh, among all players with 350 plate appearances, so that's uh, 246 players, Kwan 
had the third lowest swing rate. He swung more often than only Daniel Vogelbach and Juan Soto. And Oscar Gonzalez had the third highest swing rate of anyone. He swung at 59.2% of pitches behind only Luis Robert and Nick Gordon of the Twins. So you had uh, two rookie outfielders who played a big part in the Guardians' surprise season and postseason run, and they could not have been more different when it came to their swing profiles. Now, Gonzalez, despite swinging at everything, he still makes pretty good contact, not like Stephen Kwan, but Gonzalez's strikeout rate was only 19.6%, so significantly below average strikeout rate or better than average strikeout rate, even though he swung at everything and, and didn't really walk. So I guess the common theme there is that they both had high contact rates, but just a completely different swing profile, which is pretty interesting because you, you might think like, oh, they're, you know, young rookies coming up with the same team and the same player development system and they would prize different things. But it does seem like plate discipline and contact rate, those are things that aren't necessarily like set in stone, but are are maybe more inherent or resistant to, to change and development than some other qualities that can be more easily adjusted in this day and age. So those guys were just uh, completely opposites, wow. but it worked for each of them in, in their own way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's a cool yeah. thing. All right. Next up is the Mariners. We also talked a lot about the Mariners That's this year. Right. <laughs> and so uh, this submission from listener Matt is somewhat obscure and not even about the Major League Mariners, but This was about the Mariners' top prospect, who is Harry Ford. Yeah. And uh, he was their first-round pick in 2021. Yep. And he is a a catcher, and he's young, and he is still quite a ways away from the majors. I I think he's, like, looking at maybe a 2025 ETA or something. But he's only 19 years old, but he was uh, the 12th overall pick last year. And although he is a long way from the majors, he was in A-ball, he did and has gotten to star in WBC qualifiers Mm. because he was on the Great Britain qualifier team, and I guess uh, the Great Britain WBC team because they qualified for the WBC for the first time ever, largely or in part due to Harry Ford and his heroics. So both of his parents are British, born and raised there. And he is not, but he gets to play on the Great Britain team. And uh, Great Britain played three games in the qualifiers, and they beat France and Germany and also Spain. Mm. And the Spanish team that they beat to get into the tournament included shortstop Noelvi Marte, oh. <laughs> who, who was the, the former Mariners top prospect, who was uh, sent to the Reds in the Luis yeah. Castillo trade. And he homered in that game, but so did Harry Ford. And Harry Ford, he caught and hit leadoff in all three of Great Britain's qualifiers and led them to victory in in all of those games. And I think he he hit three homers, uh, three games, three homers, and three for six in the first two games with two homers and a double and three walks. And then in that final game, he hit his third homer. He went two for five, drove in three runs and clinched the first ever WBC berth for Great Britain. So even though he spent the season 
with the Modesto Nuts, Mm -hmm. the Mariners single A affiliate. He still got to star on that stage, and I guess we will get to see him playing in competitive WBC games with Great Britain. So that's a nice little introduction to maybe more of a playoff-type atmosphere than you get in A-ball. I don't know what the crowd was like at the Spain-Great Britain qualifier, but there he is, starring for his country, or at least his parents' country that he plays for. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. All right, Orioles. So... Couple submissions here. Matt noted that after Grayson Rodriguez got hurt, the next big starter prospect that the Orioles had was DL Hall. And he did make his major league debut, unlike Rodriguez. He got one MLB start and it did not go well. And mm. he was sent back down. And from then on, all of his appearances in the minors and the majors were in the bullpen. And it's uh, not totally clear whether he'll be starting again so i'm sure it wasn't entirely because of uh one start that that didn't go well in the big leagues but he i guess he he pitched in in many games he pitched in 11 games for the orioles but he made only one start and uh then it was just the bullpen for him both on the major league staff and once he went back to the minors so i i don't know whether you look at that as a turning point or not like it wasn't the worst start ever he he came up and he faced the rays on august 13th and took the loss he went three and two-thirds innings he gave up five runs on four walks six strikeouts five hits i mean it's not good but it's not so bad but after that he was just back in the bullpen and for the rest of the season so I he's still a, a prospect and it's not like one game changes your your whole outlook or where you're going to land but that's uh it's notable I guess and the other submission was uh from Kevin who pointed out that Anthony Santander led the team with a career high 33 homers and he also had five two homer games including the last four games in which he went deep in 2022 but Oddest of all, the Orioles were one in four when he homered twice, and they are now one in nine all time when he has two home runs in a game. The only win was a 14 to 8 mess in Fenway on September 26th. So he has 10 career two homer games, and the Orioles are are one in nine in those games. Hmm. That is that is weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very strange. Yeah. I looked at in Ryan Nelson frequent stat blast consultant RS Nelson 23 on Twitter. He did a little mini stat blast here. I guess we we have a few of those in this episode, but overall when a team has a player hit two homers, it wins 72.4% of the time or it, huh. it has historically. So if that's all you know that someone has hit two homers, then you're you're almost three quarters likely to win the game, which is not so surprising because uh, getting a two homer game out of someone before anyone else does anything else or or exclusive of everything else, that's that's pretty good. This is actually I think not just two. I think this is uh, two plus. Okay. So it could be more than sure. two sometimes. But Santander's one in nine lifetime is by far the worst winning percentage by anyone in games where he's homered two or more times. So he's one in nine. It's a 10% win rate. The other worst one, so Lee Thomas was uh, one in six. Ken Griffey, I assume senior, not junior, was one in five. 
Charlie Neal also one in five. And then uh, Mike Davis was one in four. So Santa there is like a total outlier here in terms of uh, worst win rates. And he still has time for for teams to improve that. I guess it hasn't helped that he has played mostly for really, really terrible Orioles teams. Right, right? Yeah. So, so that'll do it, I guess. But but even in light of that, you would think that he would have had, uh, had better luck. But the the outlier on the other end, so Adam LaRoche, his teams when he homered two or more times went twenty-three and one. So ninety-six percent win rate. And right behind him is Mookie Betts at twenty-two and one. And he's uh he's also at ninety-six percent. Although Mookie, he's had a bunch of three homer games, which uh I think we have mentioned before that he had an unusual cluster of yeah. multi homer games. I think that may have been the subject of a stat blast or mini stat blast. But I will put the spreadsheet online. But Santander just weird, weird outlier where him hitting two or more homers has not been a good omen for the Orioles thus far. But maybe that'll change now that the Orioles are a bit better. I would continue to hit two or more homers whenever I could if I were Anthony Santander. Yeah, like I think that if one is given the option to do that or not do that, um, one should do that. Not only for the sake of your team, but just for yourself. Because if you keep doing that, you know, like people are going to be like, oh, that guy, he hits home runs. Right. All right. The Rangers, this was also submitted by Matt. So the Rangers suffered three immaculate innings against them, that is. So uh, nine pitches, nine strikes, three outs. And two of them were in the same game, which I think was mentioned on the show against the Astros on June 15th. And in all three of them, I think the third one was a Reed Detmers game. So in all three, Ezekiel Duran struck out. So he was the first player, I think, ever to strike out in in three immaculate innings. So not something you want to be known for, I guess, Ezekiel Duran. Yeah. And it's also sort of a tungsten arm angel story, as Matt points out, because Reed Detmers threw that third immaculate inning while the Angels were losing five to two. So the Rangers, uh, they've been on on the bad end of some no-hitters, but also three immaculate innings, and they are the second team ever to suffer that indignity in a single season after the 1979 San Francisco Giants. Yeesh. And Ezekiel Duran was part of all three of them. And on a more positive note, I guess, uh, listener Mulder Batflip in the Patreon Discord group. Terrific. Yeah, he suggested that we mention the second half that Nathaniel Lowe had. And, and I don't know whether we ever did mention this, and I was not really aware of this, but wow, he had himself a second half. Among qualified hitters in the second half, only Aaron Judge was better than Nathaniel Lowe. Mm. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I did know that Aaron Judge had a good second half. I was aware of that. But Nathaniel Lowe... I was not so aware of. So in the second half, if I'm sorting by WRC plus here, it goes Aaron Judge 252, then a very, very big drop off to Nathaniel Lowe at 176. But he just surpassed Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez. And I really just uh, did not know that was 301 second half plate appearances. And because of that, he ended up with a very robust 143 WRC plus on the season. He hit three. 02, 358, 492 in 645 plate appearances, 27 dingers. So, I mean, he had been the the less notable 
low slash low in the majors yeah. up until this year. But I guess there was a, kind of a, a changing of the hierarchy when it came to the lows and, and lows in 2022 because Nathaniel Lowe was really spectacular, especially in the second half. And Brandon Lau was uh, not so much and, and didn't play a full season and, and had all sorts of issues. So there you go. The, yeah. the low that the Rays did not keep, he was fantastic in 2022. All right. We have the Rays now, Nathaniel Lowe's original team. Mm-hmm. So we did talk about one trade that the Rays made that worked out really well for them. The trade where they acquired Isak Predis for Austin Meadows before the season started. And yeah. Predis was really fantastic for the Rays and I think out-homered everyone on the Tigers, just to add insult to injury. But there was a, a maybe lesser known trade that the Rays made prior to the season that also worked out quite well for them. And that was for Harold Ramirez. So oh, yeah. yeah, Harold Ramirez... He was traded by the Cubs to the Rays mm-hmm. for Esteban Quiros on March 25th, 2022. So right before opening day. And he never actually played for the Cubs. He was with the Guardians last year. Right. And then the, the Cubs uh, purchased him from Cleveland. You gotta which, change that language. I know. It's always, I'm like, purchased. Yeah, but that's, like, that's on, what it says in the transaction I log. Know, but they, I know. They, Paid money to to acquire his these rights? services. Yeah, uh, it just feels like you're saying you're saying yeah. uh, the same thing with more words. Right. You know, Basically. I'm not blaming you, Ben. To be clear, I'm saying that like you yeah. know, in the, in the next CBA, maybe we update this language. Just, yeah, you know. I don't I don't know how to say it in right. a more palatable way. Yeah. But they paid only money right. for <laughs> for the right to uh, have Harold Ramirez play for them. Yeah. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. At least so Harold Ramirez for the Rays. He uh, he had a really nice year. It was not an yeah. Isak Paredes level year, but, but it was a nice year. Yeah, it was yeah. a it was a good year. He he hit three hundred. Yeah, which is even in this day and age, hitting three hundred is pretty impressive. Yeah. And he didn't hit for a ton of power or anything, but 435 plate appearances. Yeah. He had 300, 343, 404, and had a 119 OPS plus. And this was uh, the first year that he had been an above average hitter and he offered positive value. And, and beyond that, he actually, like, he lost a month to injury, yeah. I think. And if he had not, then he could have made a run at the batting title because uh, he did not qualify. He is one of those players who did not qualify for the batting title. But, I mean, I guess he hit 300 like he would have had to have a great month. But sure. But he was in the running at least, yeah. I think. And so I, I'm reading from a Tampa Bay Times article that says the headline, Call Harold Ramirez a lot of things for Rays, including Mr. Happy. Mm. So he's also uh, very happy. And he, <laughs> he, he smiles a lot. And uh, he's uh, just a good clubhouse guy. Yeah. And so he, he got hit by a pitch and, and he th- fractured his thumb and was out for a month. And so he was not happy about that. No. But other than that, he's uh, just very popular and was kind of like... You know, we talked about Stephen Vogt being popular. We talked about Guillermo Heredia being very popular for yep. Atlanta. But those guys were not 
good when they were playing. Right. But Harold Ramirez was also pretty good when he was playing. Yeah. And, you know, he's got like uh, dyed blue hair, yeah. which is fun. It's, yeah. uh, it's, you know, kind of floppy, floppy blue hair. Yeah. And he's like, the article, one of the Rays' most enthusiastic, animated, and loudest cheerleaders in the dugout. He's great, manager Kevin Cash said. Just a genuinely good person. Yeah. And uh, talks about his uh, family and his upbringing and just his uh, style. And and he's just a a fun player who I don't know if we ever mentioned. So Harold Ramirez, everyone, just uh, another example of the Rays getting a good player and seemingly a, a good person in a trade. Yeah. Okay. All right. And the Red Sox. So not that many great stories about the Red Sox this year, but uh, Ryan nominated Dennis Eckersley, who retired as a broadcaster. And, you know, he was a broadcaster for, for 20 years or so, and he was immensely popular in yeah. that role. And he has developed his own lingo. He has his own actionary, dictionary, actionary. There is a, a Twitter account called the Actionary. That has, uh, it's at Actionary, and it has tracked just all of his uh, little phrases that he has coined, or at least that he uses, because he's famous for having coined walk-off or or walk-off piece, as Mm. he originally put it. But as a broadcaster, he has continued to employ these unique phrases. And and this is something that even as a player, he was known for. There's a Peter Gammons book from the 80s that has like a Dennis Eckersley dictionary in it. And he said like some of these he has coined himself. Some of them he just picks up from other people or he doesn't even know where he got them, but he incorporates them into conversation. So I'll read. There's a, a Google Doc that the Actionary put together with uh, all of the echisms that we will now no longer be treated to Aww. as he is retired. So the the most common phrases by Eck are "I gotta have it" or "I gotta have that." That's uh, basically like a, a pitch on the corner that he thinks should be called a strike. And okay. as a former pitcher, he looks at it from the pitcher's perspective. Sure. And so he says, uh, this is a strike. I got to have that. Sometimes he might add a pair of shoes. That's a pair of shoes, which is what he calls a looking strikeout. Okay. A pair of shoes. <laughs> so the batter usually thinks the pitch is a ball out of the pitcher's hand, causing him to freeze in his shoes okay. as it crosses the plate for a strike. So it's a pair of shoes for some reason. So that's a common phrase. It's a beautiful thing mm. is a, an Eck go-to catchphrase. Put the ranch on it. That means, you know, basically bet the ranch like you're so confident in it that you'll you'll bet everything. You'll you'll put the ranch on it. And just to stay in shape is an activity done with just enough frequency because the player can. So like you can go to a full count just to stay in shape. Like sure. that's, it's just what you do. And he's got a lot of nicknames and some other things that he calls by weird names, but some other echisms. A home run is a baboomba. That's Pretty delight. good. That's great. Yeah. Bases loaded is bases drunk. I've, I've heard others say that. I don't know if he started that or, yeah. or if he's just known for that. A bean is either 100 miles per hour or $1 million. Okay. <laughs> so like someone who's making $19 million is making 19 beans a year. Okay. Or if you throw 100, I guess you threw a bean. And uh, some of these are exactly echisms, like big league, you know, yeah. saying that you're a big league, you're like you're legit. That's uh, that's pretty common. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I don't think we need to credit him with that one. You know. Yeah, branch work, 
So when the results are not reflective of a pitcher's outing due to fluky or unlucky breaks. Branch work. Yeah, branch work, like a check swing single or like a weekly hit home run or like it goes around the pesky pole or an at-bat with a bunch of rockets foul that ends in an out, consistently working with runners on base but getting an out. Yeah. Branch work. So I branch guess work. Kevin Gossman was having a lot of branch, branch work, work done against him. Yeah. Oh, that makes hmm. me think of like um, landscaping. Like, you yeah, had, you know, yeah. had a, hmm. we had a tree out front and had to have some branch work done on it earlier this summer because it was right. looking scraggly. Yeah, same thing just uh, happened to me. We a, a branch kind of like fell over the road and, and scraped across our windshield as we were just driving up here. So we we need ben. to do some branch work after I'm done with this podcast. Are you All okay? Right. Are you are you guys okay? Oh yeah, we're fine. Yeah, I feel was... like you sometimes you drop stuff on me in the middle of an episode <laughs> that you should really lead with. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't fall. It was it. It was just like I guess it the branch cracked maybe and was hanging over the road and so as we went by it it scraped across oh, the cart but it, okay. it was not like yeah that's less dramatic than what i was envisioning i was like <laughs> you have yeah. people you got a baby in that car and You're right yeah oh my well i'm glad that it was not you know more dramatic you know yeah it didn't stop you in your two shoes no it did not it's a pair of shoes to hit a home run is to go bridge Okay. And uh, a bridge master can be someone who who hits a lot of home runs. Okay. <laughs> Some of these like Broadway, middle of the strike zone. Okay. Yeah, Bronze, okay. Tatan. I mean, we know this, right? Yeah. And uh, cheese. Okay. I mean, yeah, some, some of these. Of these yeah. Some of these feel like you know you just you just liked right. Dennis Eckersley and you want to credit him yeah. and stuff, and that's fine. But like, let's yeah. call it what it is. Hesitation cheese is a fastball in which the pitcher hesitates in his delivery. It's not like <laughs> a particularly pungent kind of cheese that you're no. like, I don't know if I shouldn't do this one. This might want, this one might be illegal. In the U.S., a lot of different varieties of cheese. Ultra cheese is Ultra uh, cheese. when a guy's throwing beans, I guess. <laughs> cheese school is what he calls like driveline, <laughs> like a okay. place where you can go to improve your fastball velocity. Cheese is cheese school? school. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Dottage is is when you like dot the the corner of the zone. It's you get some good dottage. Okay. Yeah. Again, some of these like these are just baseball. And hairy guy is a middle of the order hitter <laughs> who hits long far home runs like a big hairy guy. I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that he is trying to like claim being her suit as a positive thing because I think sometimes mm-hmm. you know we we're like we're we're anti-body hair as a right. culture in a way that is very strange yeah hazel is his word for half or okay. like 50 so if you if you say someone had like a five and a half era you might say five and a hazel <laughs> for All some right. reason. yeah uh he refers to money as iron also okay. big settlers of Catan guy over there you know yeah he's, got, he's right. thinking about things in terms of resources now Johnson, in the words of Eck, everything's a Johnson. It goes with everything. So he will use it in place of a home run, like a three-run Johnson, a backdoor Johnson, which is a backdoor breaking ball, a steel Johnson is a stolen base, okay. a, a three-finger Johnson is some a three-finger changeup. I got to say, some of these sound pretty dirty. Yeah, no. Slide Johnson is a slider. A 10-year Johnson is a 10-year contract. Is this like a John, like like a Philadelphia person oh. says John for everything? And he, is like- that what... John is short for? Yeah, right. So maybe Mm. I guess he just he uses it interchangeably to mean many different things. But I guess it could be true. Yeah. Same Mm. sort of idea, apparently. He's from Oakland, not from Philly. Anyway. Listen, I gotta say though, using John 
like the Philly version. It's very tempting because it is such a delightful bit of phrasing. <laughs> yes. So, you know, if that is what he's doing, I think he can be forgiven. Right. Yeah. A lamb is the opposite of a hairy guy, I guess, like a player who is mediocre but, going through a slump. But it's lambs not like are hairy. <laughs> that is true. They get shorn. Like, that's yeah. a whole thing you do with lambs. Right. Yes. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if some of these hold up. I, I, you know, I don't think we have to change our opinion of him as a broadcaster, but no. I think we could examine some of these and be right. like, you know, we have notes. A nice head of hair is moss. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Pretty good. Deal. Yeah. We covered. Uh, Okay, party is like when a pitcher needs to attack the hitter. You want to party with the hitter. Okay. Uh, a pearl is uh, like a, a good performance, a good defensive gem, or, or sometimes you'll hear that for like a nice clean baseball. But sure. but a pearl, a spectacular pitching performance or defensive play. Peace is uh, similar to Johnson. I guess that's not that unusual. Powder River, when a pitcher airs out his best fastball and challenges the hitter to hit it. So this comes from before Eckersley, but Powder River is a, a real good fastball. And uh, Salad is a slow pitch. Yeah. Look at that salad. Snake is a sweeping breaking ball. A Snapdragon is a sharp biting curveball. This one, Speed of Stink, that means very slowly. So if you say it was a four-run game and he was moving at the speed of Stink, speed I mean, <laughs> that means he was like working at a really slow pace. Speed uh, of Stink. Stink. Speed of stink. I don't know. Hmm. Is that like, is that related to like how quickly a smell spreads? When, I don't when know. There's a, I don't know either. I don't but know. That's a good band name. Yeah. Squash is ahead. So you can have good moss on your squash, I guess. Okay. Stat Masterson is uh, someone who is well-versed in baseball analytics. So okay. Alex Spear, for instance, a regular Effectively Wild guest at the Boston Globe, he will be referred to as a, a Stat Masterson okay. by Eckersley. Okay. And then... Statue of Liberty play is when the pitcher freezes in the set position with okay, no intention of throwing the baseball. Here's yeah. the problem with that. Mm-hmm. That is another that's another play. That's another that's another action in another sport. Like that is a football thing. It's <laughs> right. a trick play in football. Yeah. Uh, I guess he just he borrowed it. I'm taking anyway. exception with that one. Okay. Well that's everything on the actionary. So thanks for your contributions to the baseball lexicon or at least popularizing yeah. some terms and we will miss you, Eck. We will. <laughs> Despite my criticism, you know, editors don't criticize because they dislike you, they want to help. So mm-hmm. that's that's where that's coming from for me. All right. The Royals, uh, Andrew nominated Jose Quas who is a, a sidewinder reliever for the Royals, who probably never came up on the show, but he's another good meet-a-major-leaguer type because mm-hmm. uh, he had a, a really interesting trajectory. So he debuted this year. He's 28 years old now, and he really went through a lot. Like He pitched 47 games for the Royals and was pretty good, but to get to that point, he was uh, he was a FedEx driver like multiple off seasons, but wow. also he first came up as a, a position player. He mm. was drafted by the Brewers in the 11th round in 2015, and then they converted him to pitching, and then they also released him because he wasn't good enough at pitching. Mm. And then he went and he pitched for the Long Island Ducks of the Atlantic League. And apparently Francisco Rodriguez was also there at the time and Quas was was warming up and he just kind of like threw a few pitches sidearm Mm. just for fun. And evidently it it looked and felt really natural. And Francisco Rodriguez was like, you should just be a sidearm pitcher now. And so he did. And, uh, And that was kind of the key for him or, yeah. or 
Aki. And then he was signed by the Diamondbacks pre-pandemic and then released by the Diamondbacks pre-pandemic or during the pandemic. I guess they released him. And then finally, he signed as a free agent with the Royals in June of 2021. And he made it up this year and he pitched quite well after pitching very well in the minors. So just kind of your your typical rags to riches minor league story working all kinds of odd jobs and going through all different outposts of baseball and then something clicks and you make it all the way to the big leagues and yeah. you know he has a family he's uh, got a couple kids and he was just trying to support them and he would like work as a FedEx driver and then go out and throw to his brother and try to just stay in baseball shape and hope someone would give him a chance and it's a nice heartwarming story it really worked out cool. and he was not just a cup of coffee guy he was actually up for most of the year and was good cool that's very mm-hmm. cool yep all right the tigers i will mention i i know that we mentioned this but the fact that a couple of the tigers most notable additions were not with them for for much of the year yeah. right and uh eduardo rodriguez was was absent for months and initially just was not even in contact with the team and then was away for a while and never publicly said exactly why he did tell the team what was up but it was uh, just some sort of family issue was oh. going on and it was reported maybe marital issues or something but mm. he just said you know it was family stuff that he was dealing with and he was yeah. away from the team and then he pitched uh, okay when he came back the other notable absence was Austin Meadows, who yeah. I, I mentioned as the player who came back in the Isak Paredes trade, although you probably would have called it the Austin Meadows trade at, at the, the time. time. Yeah. Yeah. And he missed a bunch of time with a, a lot of issues, but but one of the things that was not just physical injury related, and I think we mentioned this, but in September, he, he tweeted, this season has been an unfortunate struggle with a series of injuries and illness from dealing with vertigo early on, then COVID, yeah. to bilateral tendinitis in my Achilles, and then having to go through the rehab process each time. What I have told very few people is that I also have been struggling with my mental health in a way that has extended my time away from the game I love so much. I've been dealing with this privately with a great team of professionals, but I need to continue to put in the hard work off the field toward feeling mentally healthy. While I've been back in the clubhouse the past few weeks and plan to remain with the club through the end of the season, I am still not ready to return to the field. I'm so grateful for my family, my teammates, and the Tigers organization for supporting me through this. I can't do this alone, and I hope in sharing my experience, I can touch at least one person who might be going through their own struggles and encourage them to reach out to someone for help. So I think we may have briefly applauded that in passing, but just wanted to mention it again because uh, a lot of stigma around this sort of thing, just yeah. societally, but but especially in professional sports, yeah. right? And that has uh, started to change belatedly in baseball, and, and some players have been more open about going through these things. And so for him to put out that statement, I, I think was great, and I'm sure that yeah. did have an impact on some people. Yeah, I think that yeah. that's right. And also just wanted to mention for the Tigers, so so listener Brandon had suggested that we talk about how many different lineups the A's had had mm. because he thought that had been a record. And it, it would have indeed tied the record for a team with the DH, but the record was actually broken and, and set by the Tigers. So oh, no. Yeah. So just another little mini stat blast here that Ryan looked up for me. So we looked up a a couple different ways. We looked up just different batting orders, 
just irrespective of defensive position. So it's the same, you know, if you bat seventh one day and then you bat seventh the next day and the first day you're you're playing third base and the next day you're playing first base, it's the same Got it. by that method. And then we also looked another way where that counts as two different lineups. So right. you're taking into account not only the lineup order in your lineup slot, but also where you were playing in the field. And either way... The Tigers had 161 different lineups. Oh my gosh. They had one repeat. So the, the duplicates, July 26th and August 9th, they had the same lineup. But other than that, they had a different lineup every day. Oh, man. And Oakland and Toronto were both at 160 this year, which tied the previous record that the 2019 Jays set. And before that, the record was 158 by the 2018 Royals and also the 1985 Angels, who held the record for a long time. And before that, the 1979 A's at 153. And before that, the 1973 Rangers with 146 in the first year of the DH era. So Ryan ran this all the way back, and he gave me both leagues, including the NL. So, of course, in the NL and in the AL prior to the DH, there tended to be more lineups just because you had different starting pitchers all the time. And now you do have teams that are using the DH to give people rest days instead of having a dedicated DH every day, but still less variety than when you had a starter in the lineup. So Ryan gave it to me all the way back and for both leagues and Of course, even for AL teams in some years, there were games in NL parks where they had to have a pitcher hit. You can see all the teams and all the years in the spreadsheet that I'll link to on the show page. The overall record holder is the 1965 Mets, who played 164 games with two ties and had 164 unique lineups via both of our methods. But really, we're focusing here on the record for DH teams in DH leagues, though the trends hold across leagues. And we had done a somewhat similar stat blast back in episode 1379 about the number of lineups per team per season but now we're updating that and we're also looking at it with multiple methods counting the defensive variation and also without that regardless the tigers set that record and they can't be beaten unless a team has a different lineup every single day of a 162 game season that is what it would take to set one more record so they are almost at the maximum But I think the interesting thing is, whichever method you use here, there has been a slow and steady increase over time in the number of lineups used per year. So Ryan went back all the way, and I'll link to his spreadsheet, which has an interesting graph. But even if we just look for AL teams in the DH era, so and we compare that to even just AL teams in the present. So like in 1973, first year of the DH, AL teams had on average 111.6 lineups, not taking into account the defensive position, and 114.8 lineups taking into account the defensive position. So 111.6, 114.8. Fast forward almost 50 years to 2022, and we can just stay with AL teams for consistency, 147.8 and 152.9. So... Like 35 to 40 more lineups used now in the course of a season by an average team or or AL team than in the first season of the DH era. And there has been just a, a steady increase, obviously, like going from no DH to DH that reduced the lineup variety if you if you take into account the pitcher's slot. But 
just looking at the past 50 seasons or so, just the, the DH era, it has been a steady climb by both of these methods. And so I think there are a few different reasons for that, probably. It could be partly more defensive versatility and an emphasis on players playing more positions because uh, benches are smaller, but it's not even really that much more of an increase if you look at the defense method. It's a huge increase either way. So I think probably the rest days issue that we were talking about with the qualified hitters, so just like more days off and and someone's got to play. And then just probably being less married to certain lineup slots, being limited to certain archetypes and and types of hitter, right? So kind of anyone can bat anything these days. It's not like you have to have this guy is a leadoff hitter and this guy is a number two hitter. And maybe also like analytics driven matchups changes and, you know, handedness platoons and just like we like you against this guy and, and maybe... If we like you against this guy, then we'll move you up in the lineup, whereas in the past we might have been like, well, he's a number six hitter and he hits number six every day or something. So I think there's just a a lot more versatility and, and flexibility when it comes to this. But we do see just way, way, way more lineups than we used to. I guess it could also have to do with front office input into setting the lineups, which used to be just the domain of the manager for the most part. So now you have more of a brain trust putting these things together. And I guess that might lead to more changes. But the Tigers are sort of a sign of the times, but they are the most extreme ever. Yeah. All right. And just a couple more here. The Twins. So Paul suggested that we just uh, note Yuan Duran's incredible season Mm. that he had, which probably came up at some point, but Paul writes, he always had great stuff, but had thrown just 16 competitive innings in the two seasons leading up to 2022. Right at the end of spring training, he was moved to the bullpen and hit the ground running. Not only did he throw the hardest fastball of anyone in the league, he also dazzled with the hybrid splitter slash sinker that he threw as hard as 101 miles per hour. And despite those offerings, his curve was actually his best pitch, allowing a pitiful 166 ex-WOBA against. And so, yeah, he was one of the best relievers in baseball. He had the second highest WPA win probability added total of any reliever behind only Daniel Bard of the Rockies. So Duran had the highest in the AL. And yeah, he actually, he had the highest average fastball speed as well as uh, of anyone who threw at least 50 innings. He averaged 100.9, which was uh, 0.6 faster than Andres Munoz of the Mariners. So he did kind of come out of nowhere and uh, was just a, a dominant bullpen guy wow. that, you know, as a as a rookie and as someone who people hadn't really forecasted that for. And he was not closing for most of the season, but he did pick up eight saves with a sub two ERA. And yeah, he was just uh, totally dominant. So a nice surprise. And I guess a good example of a guy who's a starter who then gets moved to the bullpen and is just <laughs> kind yeah. of out of nowhere. Amazing. Yep. That happens. Yeah. Paul also mentioned the continued mentoring of Luisa Rise by Nelson Cruz. Even though Cruz was no longer with the Twins, he had taken a rise under his wing as well as other young players. And so over the offseason heading into 2022, Arise went down to Cruz's hometown in the Dominican Republic and they would train and hit at his batting cage and lift at his gym and stay with him at his home. So a typical day, he said, would see them starting in the cages at around 9 a.m. and hitting until noon. They would drink protein and then quickly 
quickly shift to lifting until 3 p.m. After that, they'd grab some food and rest for a bit before getting back to the cages around 7 p.m. and hitting until 11 or 12. Cruz's mother, Domingo, would often cook for them. So Arise lost about 11 pounds, and he developed this new routine. And even after leaving the twins, Cruz would call to check on him and make sure he was following the schedule and sticking to what they had worked on over the offseason. And of course, Arise won the batting title. So Cruz continuing to have an impact even from afar. All right. White Sox didn't really get many nominations for the White Sox. I guess it was just not a season with uh, <laughs> that many fun <laughs> stories. And, and probably a lot of them we did talk about. Yes, we did talk about that Tony Russo story and also yes, that Tony Russo story. So uh, we got a couple of nominations from, from Daniel, who noted that we could mention the fact that uh, Sebi Zavala became a competent backup catcher. <laughs> so I guess that's that's something. So congrats to, to Sebi. He did put together a 107 OPS plus in over 205 plate appearances after not really hitting at all in limited time in 2021. But also Daniel suggested uh, Reynaldo Lopez becoming a good late inning reliever or Eloy Jimenez's second half. So I guess Eloy's uh, thunder was a little bit stolen by Nathaniel Lowe who had an even better second half, but Jimenez was right up there. So it was Judge, Nathaniel Lowe, Jose Altuve, Jordan Alvarez, and Aloy Jimenez had the fifth best second half by a qualified hitter with a 169 WRC+. So he made up for lost time. So if we can just uh, get Aloy Jimenez to have a healthy, full season and not hurt himself playing outfield or doing something else, then, yeah. then that would that would be good yeah, for the White Sox. Be, it would be useful. Yeah, you know? he, can, he can hit when he's healthy. Yeah. All right. And lastly, we're up to the Yankees. And we got <laughs> nominations here from friend of the show, Lucas Apostolaris. And you wouldn't think that there'd be anything that we had not talked yeah. about. <laughs> they were a frequent topic of conversation. They were. But there were a couple things that I don't think we talked about. So... The first was that the Yankees hit two ultimate grand slams. Mm. So an ultimate grand slam is uh, when you hit a bases loaded walk-off homer when you're trailing by three runs. So sort of <laughs> very specific, but this is the scenario that maybe you practice in the backyard when you're hitting wiffle balls or something, right? So bases loaded walk-off homer with the team trailing by three runs. And there are only 32 on record. There may be others before we have play-by-play data, but we know of 32, and the Yankees hit two just this year, and they became only the second team on record to hit two in a single season after the 1956 Pirates. So Giancarlo Stanton hit one on September 20th against the Pirates. And that was a home run that was kind of overshadowed by Aaron Judge's 60th home run, but it was uh, in the same inning of of that home run, I believe. And then Josh Donaldson hit one on August 17th against the Rays. So that was uh, nice for the Yankees. They hit two ultimate grand slams. And as a sign of how rare it is, the Yankees as a franchise had only had two ultimate grand slams lifetime. So uh, yeah, Babe Ruth hit one September 24th, 1925. And Jason Giambi hit one on May 17th, 2002. So they had two coming into the year and they hit two more. And then I think even more interesting, Lucas pointed out Oswaldo Cabrera's defense. Mm. So Oswaldo Cabrera, he came up 23 years old, rookie, and 
he robbed a home run on his first pitch as a major league outfielder. Wow. Yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah. So it was, uh, he made his major league debut on August 17th at third base. And then on August 18th, he played outfield. And on the very first pitch, he robbed Lourdes Gurriel Jr. He went over the, the right field fence and brought back a ball. And that's uh, that's pretty darn impressive. Yeah. We talk a lot about like people who hit homers on their first pitch or their first at bat or whatever, but robbing one. Yeah. And, you're, and even more impressive is the fact that he had not played a pro game in the outfield until like the week before. Wow. So in the minors, he made his debut in the outfield on August 10th. That was in left field. He played his first game in right field on August 14th. And then on August 18th, he's playing right field in Yankee Stadium and robbing a home run in the first pitch he sees. So not a large or steep learning curve for Oswaldo Cabrera. And he finished the season in only 208 innings. He had nine defensive runs saved in right field. Wow. And then, yeah, and he was also average or better defensively at five other positions. So a quick study, Oswald. Yeah, yeah. that's impressive. Mm-hmm. All right. So that concludes this exercise, which is uh, fun, although it requires me to open about 60 tabs. So many tabs. Try to find the right one. So uh, hopefully we have not overlooked another notable story about your team, but this was great. We learned a lot. We learned about Charles LeBlanc even before we started learning about <laughs> stories that we had <laughs> overlooked so this was great and uh i'll end with the pass blast this is episode 1949 and the pass blast comes from 1949 and from jacob pomranke sabers director of editorial content and chair of the black Sox scandal research committee this was uh something i touched on in the mvp machine so 1949 gadgets galore Jacob writes, after signing Jackie Robinson and several other black players, the Brooklyn Dodgers quickly became fed up with fighting against segregated facilities, hotels, and ball fields Mm. during spring training in Florida. In 1948, the Dodgers took over an old Navy base in Vero Beach, Florida, and brought players from their 28 minor league affiliates for spring training at an integrated, all-inclusive camp they called Dodger Town. The Major League Dodgers began training there in 1949, and they brought a few experimental techniques with them. Here's a wire report on life in Dodgertown on March 27, 1949. Quote, There must be thousands of dollars worth of gadgets in this Dodger training camp, but the most fascinating of all must have cost all of 75 cents, and it looks like something dear Aunt Miriam would use for stretching the chintz curtains from the pink bedroom. It is built on the lines of miniature football goalposts, and it is called simply The Strings. It is set up in front of a home plate and a practice catcher, and every pitcher in this tremendous training camp takes his turn at hitting the strike zone. The zone is a well-defined rectangle in the dead center of the frame, which roughly approximates the area which umpires would call the pitch a strike if, of course, the batter didn't hit it first. It is a wonderful thing to practice control on, said Ralph Branca, who works at the strings by the hour. You keep trying to hit the corners with different pitches and trying to picture different batters up there and see how you would throw to their weakness. I try to get 10 in a row in there, but about the time I get going good, the darned wind blows the strings in and makes Mm -hmm. me miss a corner somewhere. Next year, the Dodgers, who do everything in the grandiose manner, not only are going to set up a type of cord which the wind can't blow, but they are going to illuminate the darned thing so the pitcher will see that strike zone sticking out at him. Hmm. Of course, it would also be a terrific idea if they could develop some sort of an iridescent strike zone to hang in suspended animation during regular ball games, which not only would help the pitcher, but which might be very beneficial to nearsighted umpires, of which ballplayers say there are many. 
Jacob concludes the strike zone training tool was just one of many gadgets that Branch Rickey's Dodgers tried to make spring training more productive and efficient for their players. They also brought in customized pitching machines that could throw sliders and knuckleballs and high-velocity fielding machines for defensive drills. The Dodgers held spring training at Dodger Town in Vero Beach until 2008 when they moved to Arizona. Former Dodgers president Peter O'Malley now runs the site and hosts amateur and professional teams from around the world. So yeah, Branch Rickey and his Dodgers were quite ahead of their time. And, and Branch Rickey himself when it came to helmets and uh, batting cages and all sorts of things. So they innovated quite a bit. Lots of uh, handy-dandy player development tools that were sort of early predecessors of uh, things that we consider cutting edge today. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that will do it for 2022. Wow. That is a, a year wrap for yeah. Effectively Wild. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're grateful for the podcast's constant presence in your life this year, you can show that gratitude, well, in any number of ways. But one great way is by supporting us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Ross Wasserman, Jabron Riaz, Nick Taylor, Andy Morris, and Jake Myers, thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Patreon Discord group. It's a real happening place. We're going to get to 1,000 members sometime in the new year. You can be one of them. You can also get access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fancrafts memberships and more. Show us a little love before the end of the year or early in 2023. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us through the Patreon site. You can also email us at podcast at fancrafts.com. You can browse or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance this episode and this week and this year. That will do it for us for this week and this year. So we will be back next week to talk to you in 2023. Well, I'm still stuck at coffee shops. I still haven't found a job. I'm having my way. Nothing day after day. There's not much else to say. still come out of me but they don't mean much anything i want to make my history i want my place by 2023